0: You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at SarahRaven.com.
1: Welcome to Grow Cook Eat Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven, and my dear friend Arthur Parkinson. We are going to talk about something that is so on our minds at the moment, which is drought-tolerant plants for containers. Arthur's whole garden is based around containers, and The Flower Yard, his wonderful book, is about literally making a sort of coral fantasia of a jungle of luscious deliciousness in a very small space, all in containers, And at Perch Hill, under the influence of Josie, our head gardener, and of Arthur, whereas 10 years ago, maybe I had 30 pots in the garden, now I have 300. (laughs) So it's now, at this time of year, that we're really pulling together ideas of combinations, colours, form, etc. So the whole stuff that we've talked about in episodes before. But we thought it would be really good to concentrate This episode on drought tolerance. And so the things that you could water every few days or even maybe just once a week, a really, really good soaking in a barrow, leaving it in for half an hour and then taking it out to drain, that kind of thing. So if you're busy at work or perhaps you've got a second home or whatever it is, and you just can't get to watering, these are the plants that I would recommend, or we would both recommend. So Over to you, Arthur. You're a great specialist in this. What what are your tops?
0: Well, I kind of the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I've started to think about it a lot more than when I, I wrote The Flower Yard, really. I mean, I'm an advocate of growing sweet peas in pots and dahlias, but the, the fact is, they are thirsty plants,
1: mm-hmm. and I
0: know that this year, all being well, everybody will be going on holiday a lot, probably a lot more, and also I. I just want more diversity, really, in in my garden and more scent. And the the good news is that there's a massive family of plants. All the herbs are very drought-tolerant and also full of scent. And when they flower, they're full of nectar. So I'm kind of going back to more traditional plants, really, but trying to do them in a style which is not domestic, if that makes some sense. So I'm going to do a big trough this year on a table, an old duck bath, actually, uh, galvanised, and I'm going to divide it up using household slates. And I'm going to plant into each section all my favourite scented mints. I'm becoming obsessed with mints. And whenever I go to a garden centre, even even not a massive posh garden centre, but even the little ones, I'm noticing all these new flavours, like grapefruit and lemon this and lemon that and basil and Moroccan and strawberry mints. And I actually get quite excited just smelling mm. it all. And they're very drought tolerant. They love to fill their roots against the side of a pot. And they can literally grow in, in gravel, really. So I'm going to grow lots of, of the mints. And also I'm going to try and do lots of different lavenders, again in troughs, and just see if they make as much impact as the more high maintenance cut flowers do Mm. but I'm not going to completely banish cut flowers I'm going to try to do lots of Echiums, so Echium blue Mm Bedder. things that you know when you go for like a coastal walk or a beach walk and you see growing they're all going to be very good for pots so I've already got lots of buddlias all the buzz dwarf series of buddlias are very good as are the, the big ones if you want big scale I just don't want to have to be getting home and having to spend you know literally it can be as long as four hours when I get home of watering, yeah, and um, with, with climate change, you know, I've not got space for water, but so it is literally turning on the hose, yeah. So it is, uh, it, it increasingly feels to me a bit greedy and unsustainable. I mean, if we mm. have a wet summer, it won't matter, but we mm. don't know what the climate's got in store for us. So I'm just going to try and, and think outside the box a little bit and be beefy with my drought tolerant herbs and things rather than you know, doing the usual oh here's an old mop bucket let's just put one little sage in that yes um which I don't like the look of I think it's either go go hard or go home with herbs isn't it
1: yeah 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 totally I scale I absolutely agree you know it just looks splendid I mean oregano is something that you've really got me into and Mm. we've got three different colors of oregano uh, that we trialed last year and I'm going to cram those into a One of the animal water troughs, one of the smaller ones, and just let them romp away. And what I find is just going over it once a month, taking out the deadheads, you know, with the holes right down to the base, they can flower until October, um, some of the oreganos, and they are really drought tolerant. Mm -hmm. They're a chalk land wildflower. And, you know, they're on chalk, they've got almost no topsoil at all. And um, chalk is obviously famously well drained. And they still thrive and flower away. And so I think it's a really good idea, just like Arthur says, to take your sort of prompts in a way from nature, as well as if you see something sort of crammed against a hot wall or something, you know, like you do sometimes see mint, you'll know that it's going to put up with a lot. And similarly, if you go into nature and see things on chalk ground and chalk downlands, then you're going to know that it's going to be drought-tolerant. And so similarly, rosemary's, of course, are um, Mediterranean. Uh, They take a lot of heat, take a lot of drought, and you'll see them really commonly in the Mediterranean. I spend a lot of time in Crete, and you'll see them right on the edge of an olive terrace, sometimes just wild rosemary, wild sages, and wild oreganos, crammed right against the the stone of the the, um, terrace wall. And, you know, what water have they got? Sometimes it doesn't rain there for months, literally, and yet they're still happily growing away and not flowering in the summer, but but certainly perfectly happy. And um, I was really lucky four Septembers ago, I went to South Africa on a botanizing wildflower trip. And I found that really helpful because it was just going in from there sort of late spring into summer in September, and I found that really helpful concentrating the mind on drought tolerant plants. And you know, if you saw a whole field full of something like an Arctotis or a Gazania or an osteospermum, which are all those classic so-called South African daisies that tend to in nature come in sort of yellows and oranges, but they've been bred now to come in a wider range of colours. But Honestly, you would see as far off into the distance just whole pastures full of those light like sort of poppies that we get occasionally in cornfields in this country. And no one's watering them because uh, the heavens have stopped, and, and no farmer's going to be watering them. So I came back from that trip and planted a big osteospermum trial, Arctotis also, and then the Gazanias, but the Gazanias do shut up when the sun goes in. So they are beautiful and they're wonderful for a, something like a greenhouse because it stays um, sort of brighter and lighter in there and warmer. So they stay open. But I think, um, again, taking a sort of a prompt from nature and where these things grow in the wild will really help you pick some excellent drought tolerant ones. And I know on that, Arthur, one of the things that I got obsessed by in South Africa with a species pelargoniums but mm-hmm. you've grown loads of pelargoniums last year didn't you
0: yeah too many to be honest i had to do a call to because they all obviously have to come inside i haven't got a greenhouse but the ones that i'm so pleased i kept they were in not massive terracotta pots but you know fairly fairly substantial pots were Prince of orange and Atter of roses which yeah. which i know you grow and i just didn't have the heart to cut them down I know people say we'll cut them back and bring them into the greenhouse and then they'll come back. But I kept them and shoved them all in a corner of our little sitting room and they were like a lovely jungle in a corner. And um, particularly after Christmas, they really came into their own once we got the horrible Christmas tree out of the house. Because what I did, I've left them in the corner, but then I've festooned them with fairy lights for, for, you know, January, February and into March. And they've looked really lovely. Mm. And the wonderful, the most wonderful thing is all the more ornate cultivated varieties which were on a windowsill in the same room Mm. have been the absolute bane of my winter life because they've they've had yellowing leaves they've been covered in aphids to the point where I'm afraid to say I've had to spray them Mm. because they just weren't getting better I was putting them outside for like two days at a time to try and get the cold to kill the aphid wasn't working so for the first time actually in my gardening life I had to had to spray them with a, a bug killer um, which I, I certainly wouldn't do if it was in the summertime, because I'm so passionate about the bees. Because they're inside, it wasn't it wouldn't mm-hmm. hurt the bees. But in total contrast, the scented leaf ones, honestly, in the same room, did not have a single aphid on them.
1: That's amazing. I think that's quite remarkable. Yeah. Um,
0: treated exactly the same from the same garden. So
1: wow, I love yeah, that. Yeah, and I
0: remember texting you going, "This is amazing. The yeah. scent must be like a, a natural repellent yes. to greenfly."
1: Yes, um, that aromatic yeah. character. So, Attar of Roses mm. and Prince of Orange.
0: Yep, they're they're my favourites, and I mean, I've kept the the cultivated ones because they're expensive, but they look pretty, yeah. pretty ropey. Yeah,
1: um, so the Regals and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Lord yeah.
0: Brute and yeah. Um, yeah, all the ones with the posh names.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: um, have been pretty tricky.
1: Sweet Mimosa is another scented one. I wonder, yeah, if that applies. So we must do a trial mm. on that. No, I, I adore them, and, and in a way, on the same in the same sort of feel, and very much inspired by you. We're actually doing a fig in pot yes. trial this year, so uh, we've got seven different varieties of figs, which are all planted into large ish either dustbins or dolly tubs, mm. and I mean again because you see them in Italy or in Greece. Just growing in the most sort of inclement, hot, a uh, hillside environment. And so I just, I'm really excited to see whether we're going to need to water them or not. And so we're going to try these, these seven different varieties and we're going to try to only water really, really well once a week. And what I mean by watering well is I always think you are better watering from the base rather than the top. And so even something like that, ideally, I would lift into a barrow of water, go off and do something else, leave it for half an hour, and then half an hour later, take it out and let it drain, and then maybe put it on a tray so that any water coming out might drain to the tray, but only after a bit when it's drained through. And that way, the water gradually rises up in the pot so you're actually going to get water at the roots. Whereas if you water from the top, one, it all often floods out, but also it quite often can just sit in the first few inches and not penetrate down. So I think if you're in a hurry, that's the most time-efficient way of, of, of watering. But Josie has another system, which is that we divide our pots into areas. And in sort of area A, you might have, six or seven pots. And if you're watering from the top, because you've got a hose and, you know, that's the system that you favour, what she recommends is that you water round from the top once in your family of six or seven, and then you do it again. And each time you're standing over the pot for at least a minute so that in the first dousing, it will soak down and rehydrate the compost. Because otherwise, often it just shoots straight out the bottom, just goes down the walls of the pot. And then you go back, and at that point it will have rehydrated enough to then hold it, hopefully. So I think in terms of watering, those are, those are two good systems. Before we finish, maybe it's good to just think of two or three things for drought-tolerant plants in shade, just in case people have only got shady gardens.
0: Yeah, trying to think. I mean, you you do more shady pots than I do actually for summer I mean what I would what I would also say for your summer pot combinations is lose your smaller ones that you've maybe been using for your spring bulb display and just Mm. focus on your big ones the bigger the pot the more moisture it will hold that's that's the rule that I always do it does make life a lot simpler so I mean one one plant that you really love for shade is um there's that pelargonium isn't
1: there actually with the fairy leaf yeah tormentosum exactly I'm glad you mentioned that wonderful plant Mm. Smells of sort of peppermint is absolutely incredible. So that's another one of the scented leaves. I think much underestimated because it, it's not really got a very showy flower. It's no. got almost tiny little butterfly, almost like moth-like white flowers. But it's not for the flower that you're growing it. It's these wonderful, wonderful, big silvery green felted leaves, that are incredibly fragrant. And the fact that it is drought tolerant and thrives in shade. And so it's a species and so surprising because you would think all the pelargoniums want baking heat, but it's happy in heat and drought, but it actually prefers dappled shade or anyway, it's perfectly happy in dappled shade. And that makes it a really excellent houseplant, of course, because, you know, houseplants tend to be in a place with lower light levels. And pelargonium tormentosum is one of my very, very favorite things to have in the garden, by the back door which is north facing and then I can bring that in in the winter when the frosts have come and it will carry on looking absolutely splendid and actually I've got one sitting right down over there in the corner and the other final one that I just want to mention that I treat in exactly the same way completely tolerant of shade and dry shade it actually comes from New Zealand where it's used as a ground cover plant in dry shade uh, I think it's a New Zealand native and it's called ciliatus. And again, I'd say it wasn't the showiest of all things. It it has a flower, but it's not significant, the flower. But it's got this dark green leaf with a really beautiful crimson purple underside. And it is happy as Larry in drought and in shade. So again, for really sumptuous, outdoor, shady plants and that you can bring inside because it's not hardy. It's from New Zealand, but it's um, from the parts where there isn't frost and um, bring it in in the winter and then put it out again as as soon as you can in May and it's absolutely splendid and is is really, really drought tolerant so in the middle of March one of the things that is just beginning to come into our life in the vegetable garden is rhubarb and I am absolutely passionate about rhubarb because it's a shade tolerant plant so any garden can house it happily because we've all got that bit of shade that we don't quite know what to do with or a lot of us do and it is completely and utterly delicious and makes wonderful puddings, but also it makes wonderful drinks. And the thing that we start making now at this time of year and go on making until July is a rhubarb cordial. And I've probably talked about this on a podcast before, but it's such a or classic that I just think I've I've really got to do it again in the spring this year. And so what we do is we pick every single bit of rhubarb that we can find in the garden and we, we slice it up into sort of chunks, I don't know, about an inch long. And then we cover it in water and put some pared down orange zest and depending on how much, two or three star anise. And we bring it all up to a boil and boil it for about 10 or 15 minutes and then leave it to steep and cool. And then as we go off in the evening, we just pour that into a jelly bag and let it drip through into a container underneath the jelly bag. And in the morning we add sugar and we try not to add too much, but you do have to have some because one, it's the preservative, but also it's just too tart without it. But the star anise really helps to decrease the amount of sugar that you use And as we move into June, when strawberries start arriving and becoming in season, we use them as a natural sweetener as well. And strawberry and rhubarb make a really lovely combination in the cordial. Anyway, and then if you want to store it for ages, you can add citric acid. We actually put ours into milk cartons and we put it in the freezer. in so those plastic two litre milk cartons and we freeze batches of it. And then we use it with fizzy water and a sprig of mint to serve at our course lunches all the way through the spring. The recipe will be in the podcast notes and I couldn't more passionately recommend it. And it's the thing that then leads into elderflower cordial, which of course we're picking and making in May. So I think that's quite a good lot on drought-tolerant plants, particularly useful for containers. And so thank you very much for listening, everybody. And next week, Arthur is back again. And he and I are going to select and highlight the things that we feel really excited about being in our summer and late summer range. And so we will see you then.
0: find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.